I have titled today's sermon, When Your Life is Falling Apart. If you read the passage ahead of time, 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15, you probably have a pretty good idea why I titled it that. Now, instead, it's because as we look at this passage, David's life has just fallen down around him. It's just fallen apart. Instead of reading chapters 14 and 15, we're going to walk through it together in, in the sermon. And the passage that we're going to read together is actually Psalm chapter 3, which was written by David in the very midst of all this chaotic things that are happening to him. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Again, the passage is Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord had sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, what has been a challenging passage to study and prepare for. There's just so much in here. I can't say everything. Um, but I pray that you will bless our time together, that we will be encouraged in a way that we're not often encouraged. Um, that, that for some, this might very well change the, their perspective of life. I pray this in Jesus' holy name, recognizing that it is not what I say, but the power of your Holy Spirit that does that for people. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we have we've looked at David's adulterous and murderous behavior, uh, adultery with Bathsheba, Bathsheba and the, the cover-up that led to the death of her husband, Uriah. We've also seen the downward spiral of David's life. I mean, David and Bathsheba's son died. Um, his firstborn son, Amnon, raped his daughter, Tamar, and then his son Absalom killed. Um, his son Absalom killed Amon, and Amnon for it. And and then because of his murderous behavior, he had to flee and into exile. He had to cross the Jordan River, go up in the north to to his his in-laws' land. So Absalom is living up there. And in our passage today, in chapter fourteen and fifteen, we see that through a series of events, through and and I think it's clear and it's it's implied in the text through some some real political pressures, David, after three years, allows his son Absalom to return to Jerusalem. But even though Absalom is now living in Jerusalem, he was not welcomed into the king's presence. He is living in separate quarters. He is remaining in the shadows. He's, he's keeping a low profile. And that, this went on for two years, all right? until that was the time when Absalom kind of comes to the conclusion that, hey, he'd have been better off out in exile where he was. 
And so he decides to sort of force the issue, force David's hand. He demands and he receives a hearing before the king. And we're told in chapter 14, verse 33, that when Absalom finally comes before the king, it says, when he finally stood before his father, he bowed himself on his face to the ground and the king kissed him. Now, if, if, you, if you've read the passage, I, I want to make very clear, it doesn't appear that this is a personal reconciliation between David and Absalom. That's not what's going on here. It's certainly not a spiritual restoration, but rather this appears to be more of a social or a political restoration of Absalom. And it also appears that David is making just one more unwise move. You see, unlike David, Absalom was never repentant for the murder of his brother. And yet even still, David does what God would never do. Although Absalom is, although there's absolutely no indication of sorrow or remorse or acknowledgement of wrongdoing, David grants reconciliation to Absalom without repentance. Absalom is restored, at least politically and socially. All right? I want you to think about this from Absalom's perspective. I mean, all of this must have seemed to him to as sort of a marvelous piece of providence. I mean, everything that, that he aspired to, everything that had been important to him had been seemingly lost in the, when he was in the exile, but now it is all suddenly restored to him. He's thinking, wow. <laughs> I mean, God really does work for the, for the good. God does really work for me. That's what he's thinking. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, wrote this. He said, wicked men can be quick to appeal to divine providence to justify their course. Um, now, if you read the passage ahead of time, like I, I continually encourage you to, this is one of the weeks where it would have been most helpful. You may have noticed that in chapter 14, verse 25 through 27, the writer inserts this description of, of Absalom that actually is completely unnecessary to the story. Because if you were to read this story and you get to 24, if you were just to skip down to 28, you wouldn't miss a beat. You wouldn't even notice that that, that that wasn't there. But yet the writer takes time to give us a description of Absalom in here that seems a little bit out of place, but it's not. If you read that, verses 25 and 27, you see that the writer tells us that Absalom is good-looking. He's got long flowing hair, so he's, he's healthy. He's got a healthy diet. He has, we're, we're told that he has a beautiful family. Basically, Absalom is Mr. Israel. Um, it, it, another hint is that while people look on the outside, just similar to the way they did Saul, the, the former king who was evil, um, um, they are also looking to Absalom for his outward appearance. Again, we're told that Absalom is good-looking, that he's got long-flowing hair, that he's got a great family, that he's Mr. Israel. But there is absolutely nothing said of him that includes wisdom, piety, or, or humility. There's just, there's nothing. And once restored, we see that reflected in his behavior. Immediately, once he's restored, Absalom, he begins to assert himself. He begins to sort of work the people, work the crowd. The first thing he does is he gets a chariot. He gets the finest horses and he, he gets 50 men who will run in front of him to clear a path. In other words, everywhere he goes, there's this sort of pomp and circumstance. He's making every sure everybody knows, listen, I'm back. I'm back. 
And, and we're also told that he gets up every morning and that he goes to the city gates. Now, to us, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot on the surface, but the fact is it, it's really significant. Because in the ancient Near East, legal, financial, marital, or property issues, they were usually handled and judged by local elders. But when the case was too difficult or when somebody wanted to appeal the, the judgment of a, a local elder, they would come to the city gates of Jerusalem to file their case, to appeal their case, to, to make a plea to the king, to make a judgment for them. It's clear from chapter 14 that David, we, if you read this, you, you've seen that David, David was willing to deal personally with the issues that people had. Um, he was not completely negligent in regard to this responsibility as king. But as you can imagine, <laughs> like, it, like any court system, like our court systems today, there was a heavy caseload, there was a backlog, and there was a, a long waiting period to have your case heard by the king. And, and like always, like even today, which I'm involved in one legal situation right now, it is, it, I mean, you just want to bang your head against the wall. It is incredibly frustrating. So, like what any aspiring politician would do, Absalom would hang out at the city gates and he would mingle with the people. Verse 5 tells us that when people came and attempted to bow down for, for him, before him like they would normally bow before a prince, he, 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 would, he would stop them. He'd put out his hand, he would embrace them, and he would, he would kiss them on the cheek. You see, see, what Absalom was doing was he was loosening his tie. He was unbuttoning his collar. He was rolling up his sleeves. He was putting on a ball cap. He was demonstrating to everybody that he, hey, I'm, I'm just a man of the people. <clears throat> and we're told that he would listen to their problems. He would listen to their complaints. And in order to sort of exacerbate their frustrations, in order to exacerbate their, their dissatisfaction with the current administration, with his father, he would say things like in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 4, he said, oh, <laughs> now if I were king, you know, if I were king, everyone who had a dispute, or everybody who had a cause could come to me and I would give them, I'd give you justice if I were the king. And this kind of undermining of his father went on for, for four years. And, and I'm sure Absalom worked several other angles as well. And during that time, according to verse 6, it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. In other words, he turned many of the people against the king, against David. And then, like so many politicians... In order to add what you might call a bit of religious veneer to all of this, he plays the religion card. After four years of, of, of working the people, working the crowd, at, you know, uh, promoting himself, he suddenly realizes and remembers that he once made a vow that if he were ever brought back to Jerusalem, that he would offer sacrifices to the Lord. But for some strange reason, these sacrifices need to be offered not in Jerusalem, but they need to be um, offered down in, in Hebron. I have a map for you here. Um, I'll print it out for you next week. You see, Hebron is all the way down at the very bottom of the map. I, I'm sorry, you might not be able to see it in the back. It, it's down south of Jerusalem, all right? And basically, Hebron is, 
is Absalom's hometown. It's where he grew up. Remember, he's an adult child of David. When, when, when he was a small child, David wasn't the king yet. I mean, David hadn't established his, his throne and established Jerusalem as the capital. So, so Absalom grew up down in Hebron. And, um, and, and this is where he had aunts and uncles, cousins, nieces and nephews, and he had friends. And Absalom then turns Hebron, what he claimed to be a place of worship, he turns it into his command post for his rebellion against the king, against his father. We're told in verse 10 that once he was in Hebron, Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say Absalom is king at Hebron. And when you think things can't get worse... The text tells us that a guy by the name of Ahithophel, David's chief of staff, his chief uh, political advisor, his speechwriter, his right-hand man, joins Absalom in this rebellion. At the end of verse 12, we're told that the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So Absalom is a scheming, manipulative, self-promoting unrepentant snake who thinks absolutely nothing of lifting his hand against the Lord's anointed. And when word gets out that Absalom has turned the people against David, that he's rallied his troops and that he is headed to Jerusalem, David does something really, really wise. He does a really wise thing. In order to minimize the bloodshed, in order to avoid civil war, in order to save his own life, he leaves the city. And while thousands, by necessity, remain in the city, uh, there are also thousands who flee with David. Verse 23 says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. Now, if you've ever, I would just about bet all of you at some point have seen a picture of Jerusalem. And typically, if you see a picture, except for Sharon back there. Sharon's blind. She can't see. Sharon, I'll try to describe it, all right? Hey, don't get upset with me. She, can, she got a good sense of humor about this. Anyways, if you're looking at Jerusalem, you're looking across the Kidron Valley. You got, you got, the, you got the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives on one side. And then down in, in the bottom is, the, is, the, is the, the brook, the creek of Hebron, of, of Kidron. And then on, you go up, and, you, and that's where you enter into the city of Jerusalem. And so, you, so you, you, get, you, you can see this. So basically, David is walking out of Jerusalem, and he is, he is coming, he's going down the mountain through, by the Kidron River, the creek bed, and then he's going, heading up the, the, the Mount of Olives, okay? And, and people are weeping as, as this is going on. You got to understand, this is an incredibly dark time for David. And and I I think it's arguably the lowest point in his life. I mean, nearly a decade has gone by since his affair and murderous behavior. But the cloud and the guilt of his adulterous and murderous behavior still hangs over him. While he has found forgiveness with the Lord, it doesn't appear that he's found forgiveness with all the people. His home and his family are in complete disarray. 
he's made a mess. Like in, like in today's passage, he's made some really poor political decisions. And he has failed to manage the kingdom as well as he would have liked, well as he should have. And he has lost the respect of so many of the people. And now there is this betrayal, this conspiracy, this rebellion, this insurrection by his own son, Absalom, who's looking to capitalize on it all, who's looking to kill his father and take over his kingdom. Some have suggested this is just one more example where David's fallen asleep. He didn't see this coming. I, I don't think that's accurate. I, I just don't. I think it's perhaps more likely that, that he did see it coming, but there was just he had no way of stopping it. Just think about it. David had accomplished so, so much. Throughout his life, the Lord had blessed him in so many incredible ways. I mean... Everything was going great. He'd been given every advantage in life that one could ever begin to imagine, but now he seemed, now everything's crashing down around him. He, he's blown it. There's a very real sense in which David has blown it. Now, this is where we're going to stop today. I mean, in two weeks from now, we're going to pick up here and we're going to see how everything pans out. But for today, I just want us to sort of stop here and I want us to look at two different things, all right? The first one, I want us to look at a very difficult thing. And then I want us to look at an extraordinary one. A difficult thing and an extraordinary thing. And while they are different, they are related. Again, one is quite difficult, the other one is quite extraordinary. And let's just talk about the difficult one first. There is something that we can see in all of this is that this is something that's not very popular among today's modern evangelicals. There's something that we can see in all of this that most people don't like to think about or even acknowledge. But if you go back and you reread chapters 14 through 15, you can see very clearly, in fact, it is absolutely undeniable that the words that the Lord spoke in chapter 12 are now being fulfilled in chapters 14 and 15, all right? A couple weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel 12. Now, second, what happens in 2 Samuel 12 took, took place 12 years earlier than chapter 14 and 15. It happened when, just after David, just after the, confronting David for his adulterous and murderous behavior, the prophet Nathan his pastor spoke on behalf of the Lord, and he said this to David in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. God said this, he said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. As I said a moment ago, we're going to, see a difficult thing, but the truth is we're actually, we're actually going to see two difficult things. While they're different, they're, they're, they're pretty similar and they're certainly related. First, first thing that is most important for us to understand is that while David was indeed forgiven, what is happening to him now, while he was forgiven in chapter 12, what is happening to him in 14 and 15 had been decreed by the Lord nearly 
10 years earlier in chapter 12. God said, listen, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, God says, because you did that, I am going to rise up evil against you out of your own house. What the Lord said he would do in chapter 14 and 15, he is now doing. So what Absalom was doing was part of the Lord's discipline. What Absalom was doing was being carried out under the sovereign and the watchful eye of the Lord. What Absalom was doing was part of the Lord's foreordained plan. And that leads me to the other difficult thing that I want you to see. Is that while Absalom's rebellion is under the guise of the Lord's sovereign decree, his deeds at the very same time are despicable acts of rebellion. While Absalom's rebellion is under the guise of the Lord's sovereign decree, he is at the very same time accountable for his own sin, his own rebellion, his own evil. So side by side, we have the fulfillment of God's sovereign decree, but we also have the wickedness of Absalom's acts for which he alone is accountable. You know, the Apostle Peter said something like this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Peter stood before the crowd and he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. What Peter was saying to that crowd was, listen, even though God ordained it, you are still, t- still guilty for doing it. So we have God's sovereignty and man's sin or man's culpability side by side. Think about it. The worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, the crucifixion of an innocent man, a compl- not unlike us, but, but unlike us, but a crucifixion of a truly innocent man, the crucifixion of Jesus. And it happened according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Yet the Lord used what was the worst thing that ever happened. He used evil. He used the shedding of Christ's blood to accomplish his own purpose. To accomplish the greatest thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. Which was the atonement of our sin. The forgiveness of his people. Now I understand. I understand that this is difficult for people to wrap their heads around. And it is not uncommon for Christians, well-meaning Christians, to feel a little bit embarrassed by it. Especially when we're talking to non-Christians. It's not uncommon for Christians to feel as if they are accusing God of being the author of evil. It's not uncommon for Christians to want to sort of explain it away or soften the blow. I mean, when they're talking to others, when they're wanting to try to comfort people, they will say things like, listen... God is not the cause of your sorrow. While he may sometimes allow bad things to happen, he doesn't actually cause them. 
Now, if you find yourself saying such things because you're trying to be helpful, you need to know that ultimately you are not being helpful. The reason you're not being helpful is because you are denying an essential truth about God. You're denying something that God claims about himself. Now, while it is a mystery and while it is difficult for us to explain, we should never, and I mean never, try to portray God in a way that he does not portray himself. While it's difficult to explain the testimony of the scriptures regarding God's sovereignty, it is overwhelming and it is unapologetic. And if we really want to help people, with our counsel, if we really want help and healing for ourselves, we must begin by acknowledging God for who he is. We must begin by acknowledging what God tells us about himself. We must begin by acknowledging God's sovereignty in all things. So that is the difficult thing I wanted to talk about today. But now let's look at the extraordinary Let's look at how embracing the difficult leads to the extraordinary. How em- I, I want to talk about how embracing the claims that God makes about himself leads to peace, true peace, to mental health, to, self, to, to self-composure, in, 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 which often happens in the very midst of hardship. In in the midst of what is arguably the very lowest moment in David's life, something beautiful, something extraordinary happens to him. In the midst of what is arguably the lowest moment in David's life, we see in him an incredible demonstration of faith. We see a genuine piety, a true godliness, a beautiful conviction that emerges in this story in regards to the Lord. If we go back to Psalm 3, the psalm that David wrote in the midst of all this this darkness, it appears that Absalom and those who have turned against David, look at Psalm chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Absalom, apparently Absalom, his son, and those who have turned against David are saying, there is no salvation for him in God. Since David has let God down, God is going to let him down. You know, and it is not uncommon for people to think that way. If you, it's not uncommon, you know, listen, if you forsake the Lord, the Lord's going to forsake you. Well, I want you to notice something at the end of verse 7. So, so Absalom and the people are, are, cursing, um, are cursing David, saying there is no salvation for him in the Lord, all right? But notice at the end of verse 7, if you can pull it up on the screen, the psalmist declares... Those people who are saying that are are wicked. It doesn't just say that they are wrong. It says they they are wicked. So what is it? I mean, that's a pretty strong word, wicked, right? So so we got to ask ourselves, what is it that, that makes these people wicked rather than just being wrong? What makes them wicked is not that they are attacking David. It might make them wrong, but that's not what makes them wicked. What makes them wicked is that they are attacking God. 
So you may be saying, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? How, how in the world are they attacking God? Here's how. They are making assumptions that the Lord is of no use to someone like David who has blown it so badly. They're making assumptions that the Lord is incapable of delivering David from such dire circumstances. They're making the assumption that somebody like David who's messed up so badly has no right to appeal to the Lord for mercy, for help, or for deliverance. They're making the assertion that for someone like David, there is no help. In other words, they are declaring lies, not about David, but lies about God. And that is what makes them wicked. Listen, it is, it is true. Chapter 14 and 15 are the fulfillment of what God said was going to happen in chapter 12. It is true that God is disciplining David. While it's true that God is teaching David a lesson, David seems to understand something that his enemies don't understand. And he declares in verse 3 of, of, of Psalm 3, he declares, the Lord is, this, even in the midst of my, my horrific mistakes, even in the midst of, of the things that I have done in my life, he says, the Lord is a shield about me. He is the lifter of my head. And the Lord has promised to never forsake me. David gets, David gets that. What we see in David is an understanding of grace and the way it operates. What we see in him is an understanding of the gospel and how it operates. Let, let's keep looking at the story. And we're going to get to the, the miraculous. All right, we've talked about the difficult. We're, we're working on the miraculous right now. In chapter 15, verse, I think it's 24, we're told that two of the priests the head priests, along with the rest of the priesthood, actually, Abathar and Zadok, along with the rest of the priesthood, they have, they, David's, remember, David's leaving the city of Jerusalem. He's going down through the, the, the Kidron Valley. And we're told that, that, um, that Abathar and, and Zadok, along with the rest of the priesthood, they're coming as well. And look what they're bringing with them. The Ark of the Covenant. They're thinking, listen, Absalom may get this city, but he doesn't get us. He may get the city, he's not getting the priesthood, he's not getting the ark. He's not getting the sign of the Lord's presence. We're going with David. Now if you were here for this, this whole sermon series, you may be thinking what David was thinking. David remembers what happened back in the people of, when the people of Saul's day turned the ark as if, treated the ark as if it were some sort of lucky rabbit's foot, some sort of a good luck charm. Remember? And so he refuses even the appearance of having that kind of a mentality. David knows that, listen, if he's going to be restored, it's not going to be because he has the Lord's furniture. But rather, it's because he has the Lord's favor. David knows that if he's going to be restored, it will only be because of the Lord's mercy and because of the Lord's grace. And while David is clearly grateful for the faithfulness of, 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 of the priests, he insists that they, in verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. Now, all of this leads us to where I've been going this whole sermon. All of this leads us to the, to the remarkable thing that, that I want you to say. Again, I said we've seen the difficult and we've seen the remarkable. Now we see the remarkable. Just listen to what David says before sending the priest back into Jerusalem with the ark as he's leaving 
going down through the Kidron Valley. So then in verse 25, he said, listen, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But, in verse 26, he says, if, if the Lord says, listen, I have no pleasure in you, behold, listen what he says, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Do you see what David does here? I mean, this is absolutely remarkable. In the very midst of the most dark and difficult time of his life, while everything in his life is falling apart, David surrenders to the Lord's sovereignty. What David is saying is, listen... The Lord is going to either bring sorrow, joy or sorrow. The Lord is going to bring blessing or hardship. The Lord is either going to bring life or death. But even if it's the latter, even if it is sorrow, even if it is hardship, even if it is death, here I am. Let the Lord do to me whatever seems good to him. Do you see that? There are no gimmicks, there's no superstition, there's no bargaining, there's no manipulation, nothing but the pure and simple surrender to a sovereign God. And in the very depths of his darkest day, David finds freedom in the sovereignty of God. In the very depths of his darkest day, David finds freedom in knowing that he, does not have to, he doesn't have to bear God's load for what's happening to him. Rather than trying to use God, David surrenders to him and he says, Behold, here I am. Let the Lord do whatever seems best to him. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see how beautiful? Yes, do you see how extraordinary and how, how freeing something like that is? In Psalm chapter 3, if we go back to our reading for the day, in, in verse 4, David says, listen, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And look at, look at verse 5. David says, I lay down and sleep. And then after I woke, it was clear that the Lord has sustained me. Even in the midst of this horrifically dark time in his life, David says he was able to sleep. He was able to find the rest in the Lord that he needed. Verse 6, he says, I, I, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So even in the midst of this terrible, terrible time, David is able to sleep, he's able to find rest, he's able to be at peace. Because regardless of what happens, he knows that the Lord is in control. After all, isn't that what all of us want in life? Don't we all want that kind of peace? What we see is that the only place to find it is in the sovereignty of God. The only way to have it is knowing that life is not simply some series of random events, but rather it is completely under the control of an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent sovereign God. There's one other important thing that I, that I need to take a moment to point out here. 
there are some who will suggest that, you know, if you're really hold on to God's sovereignty, that you will then simply be still, that you will do nothing but just sit and wait. I'm going to say right now, that is not true. In fact, I, I'm, I'm going to say, it's just, it's just not true. Now, let me say this. I'm not going to stand here and say that God would never tell you just to be still and do nothing. It's very possible the Lord would do that. But usually, in the vast majority of cases, in most cases, it's, it wasn't true of David, and usually in the vast majority of cases, it's not true for you either. If you read chapter 14 and, and read up to 18 for next week, you're going to see that David's complete submission to the sovereignty of God still permits him to use his head. It still permits him to work actively, to, to defend himself. For example, while David made the priests return with the ark and go back to Jerusalem, he also encouraged those priests to act as his spies and to send him messengers of what Absalom's going to be up to. Instead of seeing a weak resignation to the inevitable, what we see in David is a robust submission. I mean, David, if you read this, you're going to see David makes several strategic moves, but he will do these things without what you would call the feverish anxiety of trying to play God. He'll make several moves, but he will still find rest in the Lord. Let me say this. This doctrine of divine providence, it does not guarantee that your life will be void of great difficulty. It doesn't guarantee that you will not get sick or hurt. It doesn't guarantee that you will never suffer. It doesn't guarantee that someone you love will not see an un, you, that you or somebody you love will, might not see an untimely death. It doesn't guarantee that people you once so dearly trusted will never betray you, will never turn on you. But it does guarantee that those who look to Christ for their redemption will never be forsaken by the Lord. Listen, I know all of this sounds strange to some people. But people who understand and are willing to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord in all things, people who are willing and able to say with David, here I am. Let the Lord do to me whatever seems good to him. They find liberty. They find peace. They find relief. And they find energy in that. Even or perhaps especially in the darkest hours of their lives. <clears throat> One last thing as we prepare to come to the table. As David, I talked about this a minute ago, as David bids farewell to the priests, verse 30 says that he went up to the ascent, up, up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. So he'd gone down the hill, crossed the Kidron um, Creek, and then he was heading up the, 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 the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. Think about this. Six weeks from this very moment, 
what will we be doing together? Anybody know? Six weeks from today, we're going to be celebrating something else that happened at this very same place. Six weeks from today, we're going to be celebrating something that, that took place on that very same Mount of Olives. Six weeks from today, we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday. Six weeks from today, kids are going to be coming up the aisle waving palm branches as we celebrate another king, a greater king, a perfect king, who also wept in that very same place. In Luke 19, we're told that on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God. With the, so, so as David leaves, this king comes. And it says, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. See, like David, Jesus wept. But the tears that Jesus wept were not so much over his own rejection, but it was really over those who refused to believe that he is indeed capable of restoring people like David who have blown it so badly. He weeps over those who are incapable of believing that he is capable of demonstrating such mercy and help and deliverance. We have much to celebrate. We have much to find peace in. God is sovereign. He's in control. Whatever is going on in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table, may we be reminded that you use evil to accomplish your purpose. That through evil, you, you bring good. That regardless of what may be going on in our lives, regardless of how much we have blown it, that you are a king. You are our king. That you restore people like David. That you restore people like us who need it so desperately. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.